0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, our friend Hannah Stevens brings us a message from Genesis 2 and 3, where we consider the goodness of the original creation. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Hannah.
1: My name is Hannah Stevens. I work at Western Theological Seminary, and my husband and I, and our three crazy children, we attend here. Um, And it's always fun when I get to be here with you preaching and on stage. So thanks for letting me do that sometimes. Um, Right now, we're in a series on Genesis. Um, We just started it a few weeks ago. Uh, So two weeks ago, we kind of set up the series about why would we want to take a year to study Genesis? um, What are some things that we can expect? And last week, we looked really closely at Genesis 1. And this week, we're going to look really closely at Genesis 2. Um, But we're actually going to start in Genesis 1 again, in part because we're going to build a little bit more of those building blocks for how we want to engage Genesis this year. And also because Genesis 1 and 2 um, play off of each other. They complement each other well. And we're going to take a look at that as well. So, hear these words from the book that we love. In Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim et ha Vaha Haita Tohu Vavohu Vahoshech All Pene Tohom Varuach Elohim Merehefet All Pene Vayomer Elohim Yehi or or Vayar Elohim Et haor ki tov Vayavdel Elohim Haor Bein Haor <laughs> Uvain ha cho Elohim la-or yom vcho kara vla kara laila yehi erev yehi Voger, Yom, Echad. Devar Adonai. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have studied scripture, if you have been around church for a while, if you're interested in history, you're probably aware that the scriptures that we have were not originally written in English. But if you weren't aware of that, it's okay. Let's learn it now. Uh, Genesis through Malachi, what we generally refer to as the Old Testament, because it was written a long, long time ago, um, was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And Matthew through Revelation, which was also written a long time ago, but not quite so long, we generally refer to as the New Testament, and it was originally written in Greek. And I don't want you to think that uh, our translations are bad for some reason. Um, They're really quite good. There have been many people who have faithfully committed their lives to translating scripture so that you and I can read it in our original language. And they've done a good job. But we do need to be aware that any translation has to make choices. And there are things that are in the original text that don't transfer well and that get lost when we translate it. So we need to be willing to hold some of the things loosely about how we come to the text. Because not only do we have the language barrier, we also have some cultural barriers. (laughs) The people who produce this text, um, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, had a very different context than we do. And we come to the text with history and scientific discoveries and theology and politics and worldview that was nowhere near in the minds and hearts of the authors of the scripture or the original readers or hearers. And I say all this because I want to invite you, as we engage Genesis, to hold what you think it's going to say loosely. I want to invite you to be willing to be surprised by the text. Because another barrier that we have for those of us who have been around church for a while um, is that we've probably heard a lot of these stories before. We've maybe heard them in Sunday school, um, read them in a children's Bible, or like me, engaged them with veggie tales. <clears throat> and some of those, <laughs> are better introductions to Scripture than others. And so we come to the text with all of these things, with all of the things about how we think about Scripture. And we often come to the text with a certain amount of like, we already know what it's going to say. I do this all the time. But here's the thing. Scripture has a bit of mystery to it. And you could come to it over and over again, the same passage, thousands of times, and never get to the bottom of the wisdom that's found there. I mean, just think about, this is an ancient, ancient text that we still come to, expecting it to speak to our lives today. And it does. So I wonder, this year, as we're looking at this ancient text, if we can remember, it's an ancient text. But it's got a lot there for us. And maybe it's not what we expect. Can we hold loosely what we expect it to say to us? So with that, let's talk about ancient creation narratives. We have two in the beginning of Genesis. We have Genesis one, which this narrative kind of goes into two around um, chapter two, verse three and four. Um, kind of go together as one complete narrative. And then we have a second one in Genesis 2 um, that these two kind of complement each other. They emphasize different things, um, but they kind of have two different ways of telling the story of the origin of the world. They're not the only ancient creation narratives that we have. Uh, Pastor Tim talked about one last week. He looked at the Egyptian um, creation narrative a little bit and talked about how um, for the Egyptians, gods were made in the image of the Egyptians. And they believed that they were the gods. And they communicated through their creation narrative to the people of Israel that they were made to be slaves and not rest. They were meant to serve the gods, the Egyptians. We're going to look at another ancient creation narrative today, um, known as the Enuma Elish. This was the creation narrative of Babylon, and it likely predates our Genesis narratives. And there are similarities with our Genesis narratives and the Enuma Elish. Um, It looks very likely that they know about each other, that as the Genesis narratives were being created, it was in conversation with some of these other ancient creation stories, um, which actually helps us to understand some things about what was happening in the ancient world. And we can pay attention to the things that are similar that we see in all of these narratives, and then the differences. And I think the differences are key. So, here this telling of the Enuma Elish goes something like this. In the beginning, before anything was created, there was the waters and the darkness. And out of the waters there was the sweet water, and this was the first of the gods, Apsu. And out of the waters came the bitter water. This was Tiamat, the mother of all the gods. And when Upsu and Tiamat joined together, they created the younger gods, which was great, except (laughs) they were loud. And Upsu did not like the chaos that the younger gods brought into the world. And so he talked to his advisor, and they decided that he should kill the younger gods. But Tiamat's motherly instincts kick in, and she warns her oldest son, Ia about Upsu's plans. And Ea puts Upsu to sleep and kills him. Now Tiamat changes her mind. And she declares war on her children, the younger gods. She sends monsters and an army to attack and defeat them. And she almost wins. But from the younger gods arises a hero. And depending on where you lived, the god of your town was that hero. But for Babylon, it was Marduk. So Marduk arises and goes against Tiamat, and he defeats her. He shoots an arrow, and it hits her between the eyes, and from her eyes come the Tigris and Euphrates River. And out of her remains, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth. And from her advisor, Marduk... um, Creates humanity. The remains, the corpse of her advisor becomes people. And they are made with the purpose of serving the gods. They're going to be slaves to the gods, which now allows the gods to do what they always wanted to do, which was just to party and be loud. The story of the Numa Elish. Okay, so let's talk about some things. There are some similarities about what was present in the beginning. Uh, The Numa Elish was written on seven tablets. Um, The number seven is really big in Genesis 1 as well. Um, But there are some major differences between our Genesis telling that shaped the people of Israel and all the other ancient narratives about how the world began. One key difference is that there was no one to contest God's sovereignty. This is weird (laughs) in the ancient world. All the other narratives talk about a battle. It could have been these gods or those gods. we, We weren't really sure, and then it played out, and they ended up in charge. Not so in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit Elohim et Et haAretz. No one contests God in Israel's telling of the story. There is no one to come against God. There was never a question of who would be in charge in Genesis one. Also, in Genesis one, the world does not come out of violence. This is different than the other ancient narratives. All the other ancient narratives had this battle. It was violence that birthed the world. But in Genesis 1, there is chaos. There is lack of order. God brings order out of the chaos. But it's not a battle. It's not violence. And then a key, key difference is the source material for you and I, for humanity. Because in the Enuma Elish, Humanity is created from the enemy, from dark matter. That, that, that is where our source comes from. But for Genesis 2 and 1, we see we were created from the earth, which God has already declared is good. And then hear this key difference. And God breathed breath into our lungs fashioned us in God's image. This is a bold, unique claim of the Hebrew people. Not that the gods were created in the image of people, but that God fashioned humanity in God's image and breathed life into our lungs. And then the most shocking thing of these narratives in the ancient world We were not created to be slaves. We were invited to rule with God, to co-create with God. This is a bold statement for the people of Israel to make in the ancient world. And it goes against the other creation narratives of that time. Now, we talked a little last week about how these stories originally were passed down orally. They were performed in worship. They were told the people of Israel would gather around and hear these stories. They would see these stories play out. They were passed down in that tradition until they were written down many generations later. And we believe that they were written down during a particular time in Israel's history um, that these stories were written down when the people of Israel were in exile. Um, Pastor Tim talked a little bit about how they didn't know if they were going to be wiped out, and writing down the stories is one way that they could preserve their history. Um, but the other thing is, they needed these stories when they were in exile. Uh, Walter Brew oh wait, oh, I skipped ahead. Um, that's all right. We'll get back there. Stay tuned. So let's look at um, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read through it, and then we'll, then we'll hear what Walter Brueggemann has to say about it. Hear these words from the book that we love. Thus, the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Notice this is kind of like an end to Genesis 1. They flow into each other. And now we move into another telling. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. And no plant had yet sprung up, from the, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters, The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife are both naked, and they felt No shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as I was saying, these were written down when the people of Israel were in exile. Um, And this matters because of what the people of Israel needed to hang on to at that time, when their whole world was shaped by. Babylon, when their whole world was shaped by others, when they were enslaved. And Walter Brueggemann talks about this text. And here he's talking about Genesis 1 through the beginning of Genesis 2. He says, This text is likely dated to the 6th century B.C. and addressed to exiles. It served as a refutation of Babylonian theological claims. The Babylonian gods seemed to control the future, They had, it appeared, defeated the dreams of the God of Israel. Against such claims, it is here asserted that Yahweh is still God, one who watches over his creation and will bring it to well-being. This would have been so important for the people of Israel to remember because it's not what they were experiencing. They were experiencing Um, having to be at the whims of the Babylonians. They were having to be slaves. They didn't have the freedom to worship their God. To be reminded that God is sovereign, and that is the emphasis of Genesis 1. It is God, it is God, it is God. God creates, God speaks things into life, God says that it is good. God is the one in control. There is no one else in control. And this would have been a truth that the people of Israel would need to cling to because it's not what they were experiencing. It felt foreign to what they had seen. Has Babylon defeated Yahweh? No. Remember Genesis 1. It was God. It was God. God is sovereign. If we didn't have Genesis 1, we wouldn't have that emphasis on God being in charge. Now, Genesis 2 has a different emphasis. If we didn't have Genesis 2, we wouldn't have much of a sense of what kind of relationships God thought needed to be in the world. We wouldn't have a sense for what kind of relationship God wanted with humanity, or humanity to have with the world, with the rest of creation, or for humanity to have with each other. Genesis 2 clues us into the relationships God intended for a good creation, and this is where we kind of anchor a thread that runs all through Scripture. It's one of the main threads. If you were to just look at what is the Bible about, you could summarize it in one way of saying it's God's pursuit of humanity. I mean, think about that song that we sang earlier. Your, God, your goodness is running after me. We see this throughout Scripture. God is stubbornly committed to humanity in God's good world. No matter what we do, God is committed to you and I in this world. I came across a quote about a decade ago that really troubles me, and I come back to it frequently. Um, It's attributed to a biologist um, named Jonas Salks. And he says this, If all the insects were to disappear from the earth, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. Hits in the gut a little bit, right? I mean, you look at God's good creation, and there's all these symbiotic relationships. There's all these ways in which nature cares for itself in which birds and, and mammals and different plants, that they work together, actually, for each other's flourishing. And if you just leave creation alone, it flourishes. And then you throw humans in the mix. And sometimes we help with the flourishing, and sometimes we totally mess it up. And yet, God does not want Earth without us. God is pursuing us. To make a space for us in God's good creation. And there, in my mind, is nothing else to say to that, but thanks be to God. All right, so let's look at the narrative that's taking place in our text today, because it's actually connected with Genesis 3. So Genesis 2 starts kind of a four-part progression narrative that ends in Genesis 3. We talked last week about how Genesis 1 has a lot of poetic prose, Um, but Genesis 2 moves to narrative, and we have a lot of narrative in Genesis. Um, So here's the first part. Part 1, Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is there's, he talk, there's talk of the rivers and things like that. But the main movement is the placement of Adam in the garden, the placement of humanity in the garden to live. And then the second part is formation of the helper, relationships and community for humanity. This is where we start to see God's intent for humanity. And I, I want to pause here because maybe you have said... Or you've heard someone say, usually after a painful encounter with another human, maybe a breakup or being burned by another person, have you ever heard someone say, I just need to focus on my relationship with God? I just need to remember that all I need is God. But Genesis 2 seems to say something different. Notice God is not a suitable helper for Adam. Adam needs another human. It seems to be in Adam's design and you and my design. Yes, we need to focus on a relationship with God. I believe that with every part of my being. That relationship is significant for our life and necessary for our life. But it's not all of it. God also intends in God's good creation for us to be in relationship with each other, which we sometimes struggle with because we hurt each other. But it is important to remember we actually need each other for our flourishing, for our well-being. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for humans to be alone. We need each other. We need to foster those relationships and community with others. The third movement, the disruption of the relationships. You remember this? Eve looks at the fruit from the forbidden tree and sees that it is good for eating. Now up until this point, no one has made a judgment about whether something is good or bad except God. And God is making this judgment frequently. God creates something and it is good. God creates something else and it is good. It is good, it is good, it is very good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. It's God's judgment. And actually, God has already made a judgment about this tree. This is not a tree for you to eat. Eve makes a different judgment. She looks at it, and instead of trusting the judgment God has made, she makes her own, and she sees that it is good For eating. And so she eats it. And so does Adam. And that disrupts the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. And then, of course, God knows and asks about it, and Adam accuses Eve, and that disrupts the relationship between Adam and Eve, and Eve accuses the snake, and that disrupts the relationship between humanity and creation. And all these relationships that had been set up a certain way are disrupted, which then, of course, leads to the fourth movement in which there's judgment and expulsion from the garden. And these go together. Movement one and movement four, they mirror each other. It's the movement of humanity into the garden, and four is the movement out. Two and three also go together. It's about the formation of the relationships the way they're intended, and the way that they are disrupted. And then two and three, they connect with one and four. Brueggemann says it this way, the garden exists for community. When the community is violated, the goodness of the garden is lost. We know this. We experience this in the world. We have been given a good creation to live in, to flourish in. And yet, we violate relationships with each other and with God and with the earth. And we've lost some of the goodness that was intended for this creation. But we're going to spend more time talking about that next week when we get to chapter 3. Come back with me to chapter 2 because we only have a very little bit of Scripture that talks about what it was supposed to be like. We've got Genesis 1, we've got Genesis 2, and like a little bit of Revelation. The rest of it is all about how sin comes into the world and messes it up, and how God responds, and how humanity responds, right? We've got lots of time to spend there. So let's talk about what was it supposed to be? What was it supposed to look like? And in Genesis 2, we have three kind of structure pieces that God gives humanity for how it's supposed to be. The first one is permission. God creates humanity... And gives humanity permission to eat from all of the trees, except that one, um, to name the animals, to rule with God. God invites us to be co-creators with God. This is a beautiful thing. God invites humanity and gives us permission on earth and in creation. The second piece is vocation. We have work to do. Work is actually part of a good creation. This is here before the fall. Work the land, care for creation. Our work that we do, that's actually part of how we're made. We're meant to have something to do. We're meant to build things. We're meant to create things. We're meant to put our hands to work and see what comes of it. That's a part of God's good creation. Our jobs, the things that we go after, the work that we do on our homes, all of that is part of God's good creation. We have work to do. We're meant to have work to do. And then thirdly, there are restrictions or boundaries. Um, there's two that stick out to me in Genesis 2. One is the one that we all talk about is the tree. Don't eat from the tree. Um, But the other one comes at the beginning of Genesis 2, and it's in regards to the work. Work six days and rest on the seventh. Don't work all the time. Take some time to just enjoy the work of your hands, to just delight in it. Rest. Have that boundary. So when we look at these three, they're meant to be held in balance. They're meant to be that we we see them all as important, and we find space for all three, for the permission, the vocation, and the restrictions, or the boundaries, and we hold them together. But what we tend to do is overemphasize one over the rest of them. So let's take vocation. Can you imagine a world in which we would overemphasize the work that we do? in which we might get our identity wrapped up in our jobs and how good we are at them and how successful we are and the things that we do. Is it better than what somebody else does? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how we might let go of some of the permissions we've been given and the boundaries if it's all about the work that we do and how that might disrupt some of the relationships we have in our life with God, with others, with the world? Or, let's think about permission. Can you imagine if we were to overemphasize the permission at the sake of the others and make it all about what we want to do, what feels good in the moment, what seems like the right thing, we forget about our responsibility, and we just make it about enjoying life and doing whatever seems best to us in that moment. Can you imagine that? As I was thinking about this, Some generational divides and arguments came to mind for me of one generation accusing another generation of just being all about the work, caring too much about the work, and that same generation accusing this generation of not caring enough about the work, being all about the play. And they both have a point. These need to be held in balance, right? They're all important. And if we overemphasize one, it violates the others and relationships are broken. And then we have the third, restrictions or boundaries. What might happen if we overemphasize the restrictions or boundaries? And maybe think about this, who who tends to overemphasize the restrictions and boundaries? Can you think of a group of people that is a little bit focused on what not to do? and restrictions and boundaries. I think about religious people. I think about the church. I think about me. We sometimes summarize what it is that we do here, um, what it means to be a Christian in, like, list of things that you do and lists of things that you don't do. We sometimes boil it down just to that, and we forget about the other two we live in just to the boundaries and the restrictions. So what's the danger there? What might happen if you're all about that? Consider this. Have you or someone you know known ever said something like, I just really wish God would tell me what to do? I wish God would tell me which school to go to. I wish God would tell me what job to work. I wish God would tell me where to live, who to date, who to marry. If God would just tell me, I would do it. Ever had that impulse? Just tell me what to do, God. So consider, what if Genesis 2 read like this? Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And Adam said, God, just tell me what you want me to name them. Whatever you want, I'll name them that. It sounds a little insulting, right? As if God hadn't created Adam with the capacity and the creativity to come up with names for the animals. As if that wasn't the point. As if God wasn't there saying, I've made you in my image. I want to see what you're going to do in this creation. Come join me. Shape this world alongside me. The permissions that God has given to humanity. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor talks about how she um, wasn't sure if she should be ordained. She was really wrestling with it. And so she kept praying, God, should I be ordained? And over weeks, God, should I be ordained? God, do you want me to get ordained? I'll get ordained if you want me to get ordained. She prayed for weeks and months, (laughs) should I get ordained? And then she shares about how she was praying this prayer that she'd prayed for quite a while, and she felt like she heard God say to her, do you want to get ordained? See, she had forgotten that God had made her in a particular way and that what she wanted and what she cared about was part of that. And that that's actually one way that God speaks to us. It's through the things that bring us joy, that delight our hearts, that makes us come alive. That's one way we learn about how God created us and some of the intent that God has for our life is to pay attention to those things. Now, again, some of us here are a little uncomfortable with things like that. I get it. We like to have the boundary. What if the thing that I love that makes me come alive, what if it's bad? How do I know if it's bad? So I'll give you this boundary. And I'm going to give it to you because it's what Jesus gives us. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 4 here. When he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second, and now he pulls a verse from Leviticus 19, is love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws and the prophets hang on these two. So that thing, that thing that makes you come alive, that sparks something in you, you, that is like, this is what I was made for, does it violate those? Does it violate love of God and love of neighbor? If not... Maybe that's something you should pay attention to. And here, even better, what if that thing that makes you come alive, what if that was how you loved God and loved your neighbor? Now that is the sweet spot. Uh, Frederick Beekner says this, "'The place God calls you to "'is the place where your deep gladness "'and the world's deep hunger meet.'" But we tend to not trust our deep gladness. This is why the creation narrative that you have, the beginning that you have in your mind, matters. Were you made from the enemy's corpse? (laughs) From something dark, something bad? Is that the root of who you are? or? Were you made from the dust of the ground? Does God's breath flow in your lungs? That shapes a different life, depending on what you believe about who you are and where you came from. And this text is saying to us, we have permission to pay attention to the things that bring us joy. And have you seen somebody who is doing the thing that they were made to do? I do not care how boring that thing is, whether it is model airplanes or building something with popsicle sticks or sorting and categorizing leaves. When someone comes alive when they do that thing, you can't look away. There's something so compelling about a human that is fully alive in the thing that they are doing. Shouldn't that be the church? Shouldn't that be you and I? So my invitation this week is pretty simple. It's simply to pay attention. Let the things that spark joy in you Guide you. Give them some weight in your life. Notice, wow, I really love to just read to my kids. Or hey, I love playing tennis. I don't know. (laughs) What's the thing that you're like, something happens inside of me when I do this thing? And ask some questions about it. Are there ways that I could draw that out more? And then here's the big one. Are there ways that that thing that makes me come alive, that feels like it's the thing I was made to do, are there ways that that could be my expression of how I love God and how I love my neighbors? That's something I would love to see. Please pray with me. Father God, You are a good, good Father. You have made us in your image, and you have made us for this world, and you are delighted to see what we will do with it. I pray that you would teach us to trust the way that you have made us. You would teach us how to come alive in the gifts that you have given us. I pray that you would be with us this week as we pay attention to those sparks of joy we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.